Good afternoon. Thank you. There we go. I, there was a lot of energy before I started talking, so I want to keep the energy going. I am so delighted to uh, welcome you all this afternoon, and I have a number of thanks before I get started. I want to thank uh, Leslie Kendrick, Naomi Khan, and Debbie Hellman for serving as faculty organizers for this book panel, uh, and to everyone who has helped make it happen. Uh, there are so many people who work on events like these, from communications to law IT to building services to especially our events team and Rebecca Claff, and it's just wonderful to see uh, the fruits of all that labor. I also very much want to thank our panelists, Anita Allen, Dan Solov, and Ari Waldman for joining us today. Uh, it is hard to imagine a better group of scholars to be here in conversation with Danielle and this book, and we feel very fortunate to have you, so thank you for joining us. Um, it is an utter delight to be here to celebrate the fight, fight for Privacy, Protecting Dignity, Identity, and Love in the Digital Age by Danielle Citrin. Writing can be uh, a lonely enterprise, and it is really important to take moments like these to celebrate big achievements, to celebrate the publication of a book, um, and to come together for those celebrations as a community. And I'm thrilled to do both of those things today, to be here all together and in service and celebration of this important book. Danielle Citrin is the inaugural Jefferson Scholars Foundation Schenck Distinguished Professor of Law here at the Law School. She is also the Cadell and Chapman Professor of Law, a chair I hold close to my heart as it was uh, a chair I held once, um, and the inaugural director of our Law Tech Center. Danielle is an honors graduate of Duke University and Fordham University School of Law, and she previously was a member of the law faculty at both the University of Maryland and Boston University. Danielle is, and I don't think this will come as a surprise to anyone in this room, but I will tell you anyway, Danielle is a leading national and international voice on matters relating to privacy, free expression, and civil rights. She has testified before both Congress in the United States and the House of Commons in the United Kingdom. She serves as the Vice President of the nonprofit Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. She has chaired the board of the Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC, and she serves or has served as an advisor to most of the social media platforms that you have heard of, including Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Bumble, and Spotify. Uh, and she is a member of the American Law Institute where she currently serves as an advisor to two projects, the Restatement Third Information Privacy Principles Project and the Restatement Third Torts on Defamation and Privacy. It is no exaggeration to say that Danielle, alongside several of the members of our panel, has literally built this field of scholarship while flying the plane. And she continues to break new ground in this field today and no doubt into the future. Danielle is the author of two books and dozens of scholarly articles, essays, and book chapters, and she has garnered widespread and very well-deserved acclaim for her work exploring the intersection of technology, privacy, and harassment. In 2019, Danielle was named a fellow of the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, more commonly known as a MacArthur Genius Award, making Danielle not making, naming her as what she always was, um, a genius. Uh, so we were so lucky to have Danielle join our faculty here at UVA shortly after that in December of 2020. In the short time since then, she has really become an indispensable fixture of our community's intellectual life and more broadly in the lives of our students. 
She is so generous both intellectually and personally. She is as generous, in fact, as she is accomplished. She is always ready to read a colleague's work, to include a student in her own work, to welcome literally everyone to her home, and to generally uplift all those around her. The book that we celebrate today, this book here, The Fight for Privacy, has garnered widespread uh, attention and reviews, and I know that Danielle has been dis busy discussing it across the nation in podcasts and in talks and more. She was just on Strict Scrutiny uh, uh, that dropped today. The Fight for Privacy deftly weaves together the stories of activists, advocates, and victims as Danielle explores the countless ways that corporations and individuals exploit privacy loopholes in the digital age. This book has been described as, quote, a crucial book for understanding the crisis of privacy invasion and the unrelenting damage that comes from intimate, non-consensual surveillance. It is, according to its starred Kirkus Review, quote, an informed, bracing call to action in defense of our private selves. I'm thrilled to be able to honor Danielle's work today. This book and her scholarship more broadly shows that she is a humanist in all that she does a humanist in building this legal field to facilitate and support human flourishing, and a humanist in the way she joins and builds communities, not only ours here at UVA Law, but all ac across the country. So before I turn things over to uh, Deborah Hellman, who is serving as today's moderator, I wanna briefly introduce her as well. It won't be as long. Uh, Debbie is the David Lurton Massey Jr. Professor of Law and the F. Palmer Weber Research Professor of Civil Liberties and Human Rights here at the law school, as well as the director of our Center for Law and Philosophy. She is a graduate of Harvard Law School, and she also holds a master's degree from Columbia University and a BA from Dartmouth. We are so lucky that she joined our faculty in 2012 after serving on the faculty of the University of Maryland Francis Carey School of Law for almost two decades, much of that time with Danielle. Debbie's scholarship focuses on equal protection law and its philosophical justification on the relationship between money and legal rights and on the obligations of professional roles. She is the author of numerous scholarly articles and book chapters, as well as the co-editor of Philosophical Foundations of Discrimination Law and the author of the seminal book, When Is Discrimination Wrong? There's so much more I could say about Debbie and Danielle and our terrific panelists, um, but I know you want to hear from them. And so I will turn it over to Debbie and just say, I know I will enjoy every minute of this panel, and I'm confident that you will as well. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure to get to introduce our fabulous panelists, and it's a real tribute to Danielle that she has some real luminaries in the field, no surprise though. Um, and I am really honored to be getting to moderate my dear friends panel um, about this really important work. So let me start with Dan. I'm gonna introduce the panelists in the order that they're going to speak, which uh, we decided on the basis of what they have to say and how it fits into a dis larger discussion. So I'm gonna start with uh, Dan Soloff. So Daniel Soloff is the Eugene L. and Barbara A. Bernard Professor of Intellectual Property and Technology Law at the George Washington University School of Law. He's the author of several, uh, or law school, sorry, I said that wrong. He's the author of several influential books in the privacy field, including Breached, Why Data Security Law Fails and How to Improve It, by Oxford Press, Nothing to Hide, the False Trade-Off Between Privacy and Security from Yale University Press, Understanding Privacy, 
from Harvard, and The Future of Reputation, Gossip and Rumor in the Information Age from Yale University Press. He's also the author of several textbooks in the field and over 90 law review articles, and my special favorite, a children's fiction book about privacy called The Eyemonger, which I am dying to get. Solov is also a really engaged scholar. He serves as the co-reporter on the American Law Institute's Principles of Law on Data Privacy. In addition, he organizes several annual events, including the Privacy and Security Forum and the Privacy Law Salon. He's also a founder of the Privacy Law Scholars Conference, and Dan will be speaking first. Following Dan is Professor Anita Allen, Professor Allen is the Henry R. Silverman Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. Allen has published over 120 articles and chapters, and her books include several, so you'll have to bear with me, Unpopular Privacy, What Must Be We Hide from Oxford Press, Privacy Law and Society from Thompson West, The New Ethics, A Guided Tour of the 21st Century Moral Landscape, from Miramax Hyperion, Why Privacy Isn't Everything, Feminist Reflections on Personal Accountability by Ro from Roman and Littlefield, and Uneasy Access, Privacy of Women in a Free Society, also by Roman and Littlefield. And I'll note that last night that uh, her first book got lots of conversation at our dinner, so still influencing people uh, a lot today. Professor Allen is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine, the American Law Institute, the American Philosophical Society, and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She's received honorary degrees from Tilburg University in the Netherlands and from Worcester College. She was awarded in 2021 the Philip L. Quinn Prize for Service to Philosophy and Philosophers by the American Philosophical Association. Uh, the 2022 Founders Award by the Hastings Center for Service to Bioethics, and the 2022 Privacy Award of the Berkeley Law and Technology Center for groundbreaking contributions to privacy and data protection law. Our third speaker is Professor Ari Waldman. He's Professor of Law and Computer Science at Northeastern University, where he's also the Faculty Director of the Center for Law, Information, and Creativity. I love that title. His work focuses on how law and technology affect marginalized populations, with particular focus on privacy, misinformation, and the LGBT community. He's the author of two books, Privacy as Trust, Information Privacy for an Information Age, from Cambridge University Press, and Industry Unbound, the Inside Story of Privacy, Data, and Corporate Power, from Cambridge University Press, as well as more than 30 articles. He also was elected to the American Law Institute and serves on the board of the Electronic Privacy Information Center and also as chair of the Privacy Law Scholars Conference. He's, in addition, the founder of At Legally Queer, a social media project that educates the public about the history, present, and future of LGBTQ freedom. We're extremely lucky to have three such distinguished commentators on Danielle's book. And Dan, the podium is yours. So I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, and what I'd like to do is talk about really a history of Danielle's work. Um, I think this book is the culmination of many uh, themes in her work 
from the get-go. Um, I got to know Danielle uh, with her, I believe, your first privacy article, uh, Reservoirs of Danger. Um, it was uh, a wonderful piece. She sent it to me. I read it, and I was amazed. I was like, this is a person I've got to meet. Um, very fortunately, uh, got to meet her soon after reading the article. Um, we started a series of just wonderful conversations about privacy. Um, and I could already see all the, the themes in her work uh, just from talking to her. And it's amazing to see uh, those themes uh, in that early discussion all develop through this long line of amazing work, um, truly amazing uh, hits uh, throughout the years. And ultimately, what I think is so fantastic about this book is how she pulls them all together. Um, uh, and there are many different strands of her work. And I'd just like to highlight a few because I can't even do justice to everything. Um, there are whole strands that I'm going to leave out, um, not because they're not worth talking about, just because I only have so much time. I've got to leave some time to my co-panelists because I could go on for hours about Danielle because I think her work is that important, that interesting, and that worth talking about. But um, so... One of the first themes that I think is really important uh, and, and some work that she's done in this book as well as prior to this book is discussing the harms of privacy. Um, it's actually an article, we, we co-authored an article about harm, uh, but this is an issue that Danielle has been writing and thinking about really from the beginning. Reservoirs of Danger is really addressing one of the problems uh, uh, that courts are, are struggling with conceptualizing what a privacy harm is. Uh, and her solution there was to try to circumvent that to create strict liability because courts were just rejecting data breach suits on the basis of finding no harm. Uh, and we started a dialogue about privacy harms. Uh, and we talked about writing a paper. And it took us a very long time to write that paper. Uh, we got very busy, but we constantly kept talking about it. We actually wrote a, a, another paper in the interim about data breach harms. And then finally, uh, last year, we published our piece on privacy harms. So finally closed that chapter. Well, there's still more to talk about. But the thing that Danielle has done on privacy harms uh, beyond the work that we've done together, this is work that she's done independently, and I think it's an amazing contribution, is as follows. For a long time, people have said, and one of the problems with privacy harms is that they're, they're very abstract, uh, and they're very hard to see wh wh what's the harm if, if someone uses your data in this way? What's the harm if you're put under surveillance? Uh, yeah, you feel a little creeped out, but so what? Is it really worth having the big muscle of the law behind you know, a harm that might seem annoying or trivial or you know, slightly uneasy? But is that enough? Is, 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 that, is that enough to really justify that? And a lot of folks have said, look, we need more dead bodies in privacy law. If we have dead bodies, then the law will finally wake up. Then something should be done. But there's no urgency if there aren't dead bodies, if there isn't blood. And the problem with privacy is a lot of it doesn't have blood. A lot of it's fairly abstract. A lot of it's been defined as harms to dignity, um, harms to democracy. And it's been very hard to link these harms to the more visceral things like blood and death. But one thing Danielle has done is found a way to do that. 
not through dead bodies, but actually through bodies. What she's done is point out that privacy and through the concept of intimate privacy uh, involves bodies. It involves people's decisions about their health. It involves people's activities, private activities, their sex lives, their intimate lives, their personal relationships. Uh, and she's defined this very rich area of health and, and bodies and in and, and a very, uh, you know, another embodied vision of privacy that isn't abstract. And reading her work, one thing that I find uh, particularly impactful is how she weaves in stories of real people's lives who are affected by privacy invasions. And these stories are visceral. They are memorable. They are horrible, um, frightening, terrifying. Uh, you feel a wide range of emotions when reading Danielle's work. It hits you. You know, Danielle's work will make you cry when you read some of these stories. They are that powerful. And she really has translated privacy in a way that is concrete, visceral, impactful. Uh, and I think that's a really essential work to make this not abstract, to make privacy something that uh, we have to pay attention to, to make the case that privacy is more than just a, a, a kind of abstract protection of dignity, but that it actually plays a very important role in people's welfare. Uh, and so I think that work is really important conceptual work, and she's linked it to not just privacy invasions that individuals do upon other individuals. So she has talked about how people are harassed online, how they're attacked online, how hate speech hurts people online, how invasions of privacy like doxing can hurt people. But she's also talked about more broadly that the responsibility goes beyond individuals. It goes to organizations, it goes to companies that are, that are in fact encouraging the speech. It goes to industries that are engaging in massive surveillance and gathering a lot of data, which can then be used to track people and find out information about their private lives and then be used to make decisions about their intimate lives. So all of this, uh, goes together and pulls in you know, private sector surveillance, data gathering, government surveillance, individual uh, attacks on other individuals, all as a piece of a rich fabric that explains why this is going on and what's wrong about it. And this is incredibly important work because courts and legislatures have struggled so hard to really wrap their minds around what the harm is in a way that the law can respond to. And Danielle's theories have given that grounding incredibly effectively. Uh, so I really think that's just a remarkable contribution. Now another contribution uh, is to privacy and feminism. And for a long time, uh, some of the early uh, feminist scholars, feminist legal scholars, were skeptical of privacy. They said that privacy was often used uh, as a pretext to avoid protecting women. Women who were victims of domestic abuse, uh, the law turned a blind eye and said, well, privacy of the home. Pri we, we can't get involved because of privacy. And so privacy 
was antithetical to women's welfare in, in, in the way it was used. And an early pioneer uh, to point out a different perspective on this was Anita Allen. Um, in her work on uneasy access and in other work, she pointed out that, that no, there's a lot more to this. The story's a lot more complicated. Yes, privacy has been used in this way, uh, in a negative way, but it could also be used in a positive way. It could be used as, a, as an important thing to protect women. Uh, and I think this was in a very important move, uh, a foundational move, uh, and Danielle has built upon that. Uh, built upon that idea and developed it in a fascinating and really interesting way um, through the concept of, of intimate privacy. Uh, and she's carried this through, I think, in, in the way I've just discussed, to, to redefine harm in a way that the law can address it. And this gets to the third point. Um, and that is, and that goes to a point that Danielle raised very early on uh, that I think is a very important point to understand, and that is that privacy doesn't affect everybody equally. Um, some people are more victimized than other people, and she pointed out uh, through a lot of evidence in a very compelling case that women and marginalized people suffer disproportionately from privacy attacks online. Uh, and the, not just in terms of frequency, but also in terms of the extent to which they're harmed as well. Uh, and this has tremendously problematic effects on their welfare, but also general effects for society and impacts on democracy and speech. And she developed a theory of privacy as a civil right. And I think it's important to understand what I think is really important about this move is for a long time uh, in the US, privacy really wasn't understood as much of a right. Uh, Warren and Brandeis wrote about the right to privacy, but they're talking about a common law right uh, because when the time they wrote, you know, people spoke about rights in, in common law, like you know, tort actions as, as rights. But ultimately, the, the US, the, the Constitution to the United States, doesn't have the word privacy in it. Uh, now we have privacy interpreted from Supreme Court decisions, interpreting a right to privacy, um, starting uh, with uh, some, some early cases and then uh, Griswold finally calling it privacy. Um, and that ultimately goes into Roe versus Wade and eventually uh, now has, I guess, receded or been turned away through Dobbs. Um, but uh, and if we go to Europe, uh, they, see privacy as a fundamental right. Uh, and uh, that's different than a civil right because in Europe, especially the EU, privacy is co-equal to speech. Uh, it's a co-equal right. It's in their charter uh, where it's not in our constitution. Uh, so, and privacy there as a fundamental right is understood in a fairly abstract way. It's protection of dignity, and it's a basic uh, right unto itself. Now, I don't think Danielle would quarrel with that view, but the way she develops it as a civil right is different. A civil right is not looking at privacy as valuable in and of itself, but that privacy is essential for equality. Privacy, should it's a key element if we're going to have equality 
gender equality, race equality, if that people are going to be equal, we need to protect this. And, and that's why she invokes the tradition of civil rights law, which I think is a very important move because it's the way, I think it's the best way to really translate privacy to US law uh, that, that can work. Because uh, we have a body of law that is able, that has some muscle to, to do this work. And so she situates it there. She makes a very compelling case for why privacy should be seen in this way. Uh, and that's different. Uh, it's very different than a fundamental right, but I think very productive because we don't have privacy in the Constitution and the Supreme Court in Dobbs is turning the other way. Um, but we still have civil rights law. And I think it's very fruitful, the directions that Danielle is proposing in her book, to move in that direction. Uh, especially here in the United States, because I think understanding that relationship uh, really situates, again, it goes back to harm, and it really makes the compelling case for why we should protect privacy. Because I think for some, an argument that privacy is valuable in and of itself is powerful, but for others, not so powerful. It's not enough to say we have to protect privacy to protect people's dignity. We need something more. We need an argument that looks at why we need to protect privacy to promote other values, to promote speech, to promote democracy. And Danielle, through her work, demonstrates very well that although privacy is often pitted against free speech uh, and seen as something to silence people who want to speak and say certain things, but, but that privacy actually enhances speech that people who are attacked and whose privacy is invaded online don't feel safe to speak, don't speak enough, and are silenced. So privacy, in fact, under Danielle's theory, is essential to speech. It is a key component to speech. It fosters free speech. And so we really shouldn't see free speech and privacy as at odds with each other, but as unified and as both helping to protect a nexus of values from equality to speech to democracy to freedom. Uh, and I think her theory really pulls all these strands together incredibly well. And so with that, um, I will hand the floor over to Anita. Uh, thank you, everybody. It's great to be here. And Dan, that was a wonderful um, overview of Danielle's accomplishments and what this book represents, and I agree 100% with your assessment of why it's important. Um, I would like to, uh, to use my time to raise some uh, concerns and some issues that relate directly to the content of the book. So I'm going to do a, you know, so Dan gave this big overview. I'm going to open the book now and just challenge you on certain assertions and <laughs> observations and push you a little bit on some of the things that you say. Um, Danielle is one of the most um, optimistic and cheerful and brilliant uh, people working in law education today, and I've enjoyed working with Danielle, not only in the academy, but also in, uh, in the context of uh, public interest law advocacy, uh, uh, academic advocacy, and, and ALI as well. So just a delightful colleague that I, of whom I'm very proud and very honored to have had a chance to work with. Um, beautifully 
uh, Mel's theory and practice and her work beautifully uh, brings us fresh insights uh, with very rich examples. Um, and thank you, Dan and Ari, for being here today, and also uh, Professor Hellman for being here, helping us to be here, and Professor Kahn for also helping to organize this event. Um, three sets of comments I want to make. Um, one is a set of comments about the conceptual constructs of intimate privacy and, um, and uh, civil rights. And then a couple of commentaries about the Warren and Brandeis Foundation of uh, Privacy Law and what it means to us in terms of rethinking privacy as a civil right. And then I want to talk about the absolute wreck of intimate privacy as a set of norms and practices today. We are in a very, very uh, shocking <laughs> and desperate situation when it comes to the respect for intimate privacy. Um, so the book um, defends the idea of what she terms intimate privacy. And she argues that intimate privacy should be considered a civil right and should be aggressively and strongly protected as such by our laws and by our, our norms. What's um, really striking about this book is that Professor um, Citron isn't just defending the idea of privacy as uh, an important civil right, but rather the idea of intimate privacy as a civil right. And that, um, I think, narrower, more focused approach may actually uh, be um, help, especially helpful in, in moving the needle and how, in general, uh, we conceptualize privacy and why it's important. So, but she has two very hard tasks that she has to perform in the book in order to make this work. She needs a very clear and robust uh, conception of intimate life as opposed to non-intimate life. And this is really hard to do. Um, one of the examples that, that, that uh, Danielle gives is that um, a bank, bank account privacy is different from privacy of intimate life. And yet I think of all the ways in which if you look at a person's banking records, you can uh, track many, many details about their intimate life to, with whom they're sharing uh, money, to whom they're giving money, uh, when and, uh, and, 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 and where, also uh, how, what they eat, what movies they might have seen, so that, that the, the boundary between the kinds of privacies of the body that are so precious to us and then the kinds of privacy which might seem on the surface to be very different from that and not so, so crucial to our identity, it turns out that there's more, I think, in sort, of, you know, in sort of mixing and melding. And it's hard to identify an area of privacy that is um, not also in some important ways intimate privacy. So I just wonder about whether we can ultimately draw a strong line between intimate privacy that needs to be protected by civil rights and other types of privacy that need to be protected by civil rights. And then, of course, uh, Danielle needs to have a clear and robust conception of civil rights as opposed to other sorts of rights. Uh, and, and in the book, you know, Danielle clearly distinguishes between civil rights and what she calls human rights and moral rights and legal rights more generally and, and, and civil liberties. Um, but what do all these concepts mean? And, and who gets it? And how do, we, how do we define all these concepts? And I think it's not um, helpful, actually, uh, to, to, to focus too much on precise definitions of abstract concepts that help us to advocate for what we think is important. It's much more important, in my view, to figure out what are people uh, troubled about, complaining about, getting outraged about, when they use words like 
my, my rights are being violated. And so it's more important to focus on the, 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 the concerns and how we might address them than on precise definitions. And yet the philosopher in me is a little bit frustrated, right, by not being able to say very distinctly how, what is the relationship between moral rights and legal rights? What's the relationship between civil rights and civil liberties? What's the relationship between human rights and, um, and civil rights? And the discussion, and, and, and Professor Sola references this, you know, the discussion in the book about, about the contrast between the human rights tradition that's available in Europe and our traditions is very, very helpful. But ultimately, we're talking about rights that people consider to be really important, maybe fundamental, maybe um, overlapping, um, and, and, and that's an important thing to, to point out. But the exact distinction between a human right and a civil right is a little bit um, vague. Um, and also, you know, the, 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 the attempt to bring the privacy law discussion into the context of civil rights is, a, is an interesting move, but it's, I think it's a, it could be potentially problematic. Um, because how are protections of, of our intimate lives similar to and different from the protections of our access to public accommodations, being able to use the swimming pool and the hotel uh, as white people do, for example, if you're black, our voting rights, um, school integration, housing, exactly how are uh, our privacy rights and interests related to or are on the same plane as the things which in the 1960s so many people uh, in my parents' generation fought so hard to have um, realized in American law. And again, I'm not denying that privacy is a, it should be seen as a civil right. I'm not denying that we can't come up with a good theory of why and how all kinds of privacy, including intimate privacy, fit the civil rights mold, but I think it's a, there's a lot more conceptual work to be done there. And Danielle's not alone in this because Virtually all of the civil rights organizations you can think of, plus the, the liberal think tanks like the Brookings Institute, they're all on the project of trying to reconceptualize privacy as a civil right. That is the task of our time, redefine privacy as a civil right for the benefit of minorities as well as for um, majority populations. Um, and so we all have to work together on trying to make this idea really um, uh, come to life. Okay. Another set of observations about Daniel's work, and I want to go to this very interesting discussion she has in the book about um, how Warren and Brandeis, who wrote the article, The Right to Privacy, published it in the, in the 1890s, how, how that right um, is, is, and that article, is what she calls, quote, a powerful opening salvo in the fight for privacy. And one of the things she points out is that the brother of Samuel Warren, this Boston lawyer and businessman from a wealthy family who worked closely with uh, Louis Brandeis, who was his law partner, that the brother of Samuel Warren, Edward, uh, or Ned Warren, was a gay man. And she suggests that maybe um, the, the fact that, that Samuel Warren, Warren had a gay brother at a time when being LGBT was against the law in so many jurisdictions might have been part of why uh, he wanted so badly to work with, with uh, Louis Brandeis to publish this article. Um, so I, I, I'm, that's a fascinating possibility that I think deserves some, some, some comment. Because um, as I have briefly looked at the life of Edward um, uh, Warren, he wasn't exactly closeted. 
he lived fairly openly as a gay man in, in Europe. Uh, his partner, John Marshall, he lived, with, he lived with John Marshall for a huge chunk of his life. He collected um, um, erotic and gay-oriented artworks, uh, great artworks, some of which are today hanging, in, hanging or sitting in some of our most prestigious museums in the UK. Um, and he wrote, uh, although under a pseudonym, he wrote several books uh, advocating uh, for certain uh, homosexual uh, lifestyles. So, so I, I mean, it's maybe you know Samuel Warren was trying to give his brother some protection. Maybe he thought his brother needed more protection than his brother thought he needed. But it was not as if his brother was living uh, as a completely closeted or especially closeted gay man. Um, as evidence that maybe Warren and Brandeis were thinking about gay rights, uh, Danielle points out that, they, that Warren and Brandeis say, you know, what's whispered in the closet uh, 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 could be shouted from the rooftops, which is a warning that we might lose our privacy. But if you look at the source of that, of that phrase, whispered in the closet, shouted from the rooftops, it actually comes from the Bible. It comes from Luke. Uh, Luke 12:30, in which Jesus says to his disciples, you know, what is spoken in the ear and closet shall be shouted uh, from housetops, and what is said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what he's talking about is, is the hypocrisy of the religious establishment. He's not talking about privacy, anybody's privacy, but ra rather the deception that, um, that people of faith may experience um, if they just listen to the, 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 the religious establishment. So I'm not sure that, I mean, maybe Warren and Brandeis misused, misused that or, or you know, sort of reinvented that to sound like it has something to do with, with, uh, with things that were cared about in the Gilded Age of, of 1890, but actually Jesus was talking about something very different when he used that, that expression. But in any event, um, so, 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 so one of the reasons why I was so interested in the possibility that, that the article could have this progressive you know, sort of base is because I think the article is incredibly not progressive and I've spent time in my own scholarship trying to argue that the Warren and Brandeis article is horrible. Um, for what it says and doesn't, doesn't say, for example, okay, so the article disdains the poor, the poor. it's classist, it disdains people who, people who read gossipy newspapers. Um, it's, there's a complete lack of acknowledgement for the ways in which um, people who don't have private homes can nonetheless need privacy. It, it completely ignores the problem that Dan's reference and that Danielle has written about herself about women being trapped in the domestic sphere, um, or gay and lesbian people being unable to be themselves, uh, especially at home, maybe in some cases, among their intimate family. A complete lack of acknowledgement in the article about the ways in which privacy is used, was used in American law to justify the subordination of black people, slavery, violence against black people and women, um, nothing about the uh, ways in which privacy was uh, the privacy of the body was uh, was uh, was uh, disrespected when slaves enslaved women were used in medical experiments by doctors and scientists or when enslaved people were photographed for uh, bogus quasi scientific purposes in the 19th century um, so you know photography this big threat that they talked about they didn't connect that to to abuses of photography that was used in their own era to create and circulate and perpetuate stereotypical images of, of, of African Americans as childlike buffoons, ignoramuses, and barely human uh, uh, people. Complete lack of regard for how newspapers were not just publishing lurid accounts of the private lives of upper middle class white people, but 
these newspapers were advocating the extermination of Native Americans. The famous author F. Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz, he owned a newspaper uh, out in, I think it was North or South Dakota, and his newspaper, and I, I quote this in my upcoming uh, uh, paper on, on race and privacy, he actually explicitly calls for the extermination of Native Americans as the best option to deal with the Indian problem. So the um, so newspapers, as a technology, we're not just being used to, you know, to talk about uh, uh, sex and people's sex lives, but it was being used in horrible ways to uh, to uh, promote uh, the Jim Crow agenda and the, and the agenda of destroying a Native American um, culture. So, by virtue of its of its omissions and blind spots, there's no wonder that the right to privacy spawned by Warren and Brandeis provided and still provides a basis for very little help for the LGBT community, even if Danielle is right, that, that, that the concerns about Warren for his gay brother might have spurred him to, to, to write the article. Interesting stuff. Um, last set of comments that I want to make are going to be about the, what I call the absolute wreck of intimate privacy uh, as a norm and a practice today. Because uh, from where I stand, uh, folks, um, from what I've been observing, intimate privacy in the United States is a complete disaster zone. Uh, the norms and practices that have emerged are shockingly self-destructive, harmful to friends and family, and harmful to society. The educational interventions, the sensible educational interventions that Professor Citron outlines in her book, uh, I think they're, they're wonderful, but I just fear that they might be too little or too little too late or, or in some way not really going to help us to, to deal with the deep dysfunction that the world uh, presents to us today. I'm observing in my own family, as well as in the courts, this kind of dysfunction about intimate privacy. I mean, one example um, that I could tell you about, uh, which I'll just mention, from my own family has to do with the situation in which um, um, a college-aged child was sent by his own uh, father as an act of revenge, a photograph of the penis of his mother's online date, who also happened to be the child's cousin. I mean, what, 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 right, right? Um, but it's so common to take, you know, those pictures. Can I say bad words, Dean Gullivar? <laughs> Dick pics. It's so common to take those pics. Young people, you know what I'm talking about. Um, it's, but when, when they get enmeshed in family conflict and family drama, it can harm not just the person whose, whose genitals are represented, but it can harm um, other family members as well when used for purposes of revenge. And I think that as we talk about the dangers of, 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 of intimate privacy, talking about what, the big, what big tech does to us, which is really, really bad, what the government does to us, also really, really bad, but what are we doing to ourselves and to one another, to our own families, as we uh, live out this, 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 this new set of cultural norms and practices around um, photography and the circulation of uh, in intimate and nude images of people's um, bodies. So, but, but I'm not talking about my family today, I'm talking about uh, a case that I think will illustrate this point um, quite well. This is a 2017 case of Chantel Jackson versus Floyd Mayweather. So Floyd Mayweather is a really famous boxer. He's a super, like, almost a billionaire. He's one of the, he was at one point named the richest athlete in America. Um, but he's a really questionable figure. So um, 
In 2006, he met this young hostess at a party in Atlanta named Chantel Jackson. He uh, invited her to move to Las Vegas to live with him, which she did. Um, soon after she arrives, well, maybe six years after she, she arrives, he has to go to jail because he's uh, for on a domestic violence charge against another woman from years um, before that. And so she's, she finds herself living with a man who's very violent against women in his, in, in his home and who has, has gone to jail for domestic violence. As soon as he gets out of jail, he, they start to argue. He, he twisted her arm at one, one point. He choked her, took her cell phone, went through her phone. All these intimate privacy invasions happening in the context of intimate life, not because the government's doing something to you or big tech, but because you and your community are doing it to yourselves. Jackson ends the relationship. She moves to LA. She goes back and forth and back and forth. In the meantime, on one occasion, he threatens to shoot her. He holds a gun to her foot and says, which toe do you want me to shoot, to, to shoot, shoot off? Um, but he keeps her as a versatile prisoner at one point, won't let her leave the, the Las Vegas home, has his, um, his henchmen uh, follow her around wherever she goes. She can't leave the house without them. He steals her property, her jewelry, her, her stuff. She puts in a, in a, in a secret placed in a storage compartment. He somehow finds out. He takes it all uh, and, and holds it hostage. He's a horrible person to her. She finally, in uh, 2013, uh, decides to leave him, but she discovers she's pregnant. And so, um, and she tells him uh, there's a, uh, an ultrasound of the, of the uh, twin fetuses, it turns out, December 13, 2013. Uh, she gives him a copy of the ultrasound, but by January 2014, she's no longer pregnant. Pregnancy's ended, um, and she's now dating Nelly the rapper. Cool, okay. So now, now she posts a, a picture of Nelly and her at an event. Mayweather sees the picture, and he commits more threats and more acts of violence against her. She does not go back to him, but she does, um, she does um, uh, decide to bring a lawsuit. And she, the lawsuit she brings, by the way, I didn't mention that he at one point uh, posted on his social media her address so that people would go to her home and, 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 and continue the harassment and surveillance of her. In any event, so um, she, um, she brings a lawsuit, a tort action for invasion of privacy, public disclosure, and false light, defamation, conversion, replevin, battery, assault, false imprisonment, intentional infliction of emotional distress, negligent infliction of emotional distress, and civil harassment. And, uh, and Mayweather brings cross claims for, um, for invasion of privacy because she taped some of their phone calls and because um, he alleges she stole some money from him. Two just a couple things I want to say about this case, because I think they are really, to me, they go to the heart of where we are as a culture around um, intimate privacy, and also uh, how race um, and gender may be affecting efforts to uh, vindicate privacy rights in a not so positive way. So in this uh, 2017 uh, Court of Appeals of California case that, um, that's, de uh, that's, that's deciding whether or not some of the, 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 the actions she brings should be able to go forward or not. In this case, the California court dis displays how hard it is to think through uh, rights around uh, concerning intimate privacy. So um, the court ends up saying that, um, that Mayweather's status as a world champion boxer in five different weight divisions and him being one of the highest paid athletes in the world, frequently on television and radio, and Jackson, Chantel Jackson's participation in the publication of information about her own life the, and her desire to be a model and an entertainer, 
All these things together means, that, guess what? She has no uh, actionable invasion of privacy uh, that she can bring forward. Except for one thing, the um, publication of the fetal ultrasound. So, so Mayweather um, posted the image, the, the fetal ultrasound image on uh, social media, on his Instagram and Facebook. He also went on the radio saying she had an abortion and that she had had cosmetic surgery, right? The court says, none of that, forget the cosmetic surgery, forget the abortion, none of that is the basis of a legitimate privacy claim because she's a public figure. But, but in California, surviving family members have a common law privacy right to the death images of the decedent. And they cite a case concerning Nikki Katsouris, an adult woman who, um, whose parents won a $2 million privacy lawsuit when state troopers published images of her gory, horrid um, death uh, uh, scene. And she was in a car accident driving her father's Porsche. She was decapitated. It was horrible. In that case, right, the court thought that, that, she, that her parents should have a right of privacy they could claim because of surviving family members. But I ask you, is a fetal ultrasound a c comparable to a death image of a death image of someone's ch of someone's child is um, a woman who obtains an abortion a surviving family member. Um, the fetal ultrasound, you know, is, is is an image not of persons or family members. The fetal ultrasound shows a living fetus, not a gruesome death image in any event. So why does the court think it's, it can somehow validate the, the, the privacy loss when a fetal ultrasound is posted on Instagram, but a woman who's been, been, been abused, beaten, choked, threatened with a gun, has no privacy interest in her cosmetic procedures or in her abortion? Like what, 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 is, what is going on there? I think this case shows that, um, a couple things, I think it shows that yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going on. I, I think, I think the, the, the case shows that, um, that uh, we don't quite know yet <laughs> um, how to uh, vindicate the entirety of, uh, of, of women's interest in, um, in intimate privacy and that women's pr intimate privacy uh, uh, possibilities are tied up also in their vulnerability to violence, right? And that it may be, as I believe, that the greatest threat to intimate privacy is not big tech or the government, but it's you and I. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Anita, and thank you, Dan. Um, I'm really uh, tickled to be able to be a part of this panel because these people who sit here um, were the people I looked up to and read and uh, learned how to do privacy scholarship for so many years. Uh, so I want to start with a few thanks. Uh, thank you to Danielle for writing this book and um, a uh, years of incredible groundbreaking scholarship. Thank you to Dan, and Anita, and Danielle for being my mentors and my mentors who have become uh, my friends. Um, and thank you to Lou Citron for the tie. Um, <clears throat> so in the few minutes that uh, we have left before questions, um, I want to do a couple things. Uh, I want to ask a question that what can we learn from, is there something else that we can learn from Danielle's book that may not be in the text? And I want to suggest that maybe Danielle is doing more than calling simply for a civil right to privacy and really trying to solve a whole range of social problems. So let's start with a question. The question I want to ask is, can a civil right to privacy help us navigate what I'll call data dilemmas? 
And what I mean by data dilemmas are not those things that we see every day where we decide to exchange our data for access to a platform. I mean the data dilemmas that we navigate, particularly marginalized and minoritized populations navigate when they try to figure out, or when we try to figure out, how much information about us do we want out there? Because there are benefits as well as harms to legibility. Right? There are certain types of people that face these questions more than others. The uh, valley bros that Danielle talks about on page 67, they don't face these barriers. They're information that's out there mostly for the dudes that build these technologies that invade our privacy. If in their information is out there, there aren't significant harms that are going to come back. But for people, particularly those who are trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming, data dilemmas are an ex a fact of life. So for example, if we provide, if we have better, if the state or if companies or other people have better and more accurate information about who is trans or who is non-binary or who is gender non-conforming, that might improve things like anti-discrimination law enforcement, right? If you don't collect good information about who we are, you can't identify examples of discrimination in a workplace, right? So that's why you might want more um, accurate or more detailed information about sexual demographic disclosure at an office, right? So you can identify discrimination. If we had better, more accurate, more detailed disclosure about gender nonconforming or queer people, you could provide better health care, particularly for a population who is underserved in the US healthcare system because we lack information about what is needed for trans health care. We could provide, if you have more or accurate information about who you are and your intimate selves, you can have a more engaged, more proud, more out, more out there social and love uh, and professional and love life, right? Um, but at the same time, legibility comes with harms, right? The more the state knows about you, the more the state can identify who you are just by a couple of data points, the easier it is for them to whip you off the street during a protest after George Floyd's murder, right? Because the more data, the more accurate data that they have out there, the easier it is for them to identify you simply by passing a CCTV camera on the corner, uh, on, the corner on the city of New York. With legibility comes with harms as well. Now, these, this dilemma, these problems that we have to navigate every day, especially for queer people and for other minoritized groups, these would, would these be less significant problems if we had a robust civil right to intimate privacy in the United States? So what does Danielle mean by a right to intimate privacy? So, um, uh, Anita suggested that there is some vagueness here. Um, I, I agree, but I also don't think specificity is necessary, not just to answer this particular question that I'm asking, but also for the purposes that Danielle is offering it here. So on page 108, um, if you want to go down into the book, specifically on page 108, Danielle talks about uh, what, intimate, what a civil right would be. A civil right to intimate privacy would combat privacy invasions amounting to invidious discrimination. It would limit or ban, for example, practices that imperil the opportunities of women, marginalized communities because of their membership in those groups. Uh, and it would also, paragraph right after that says, it would also be a right to a baseline protection for intimate privacy for everyone, civil rights deserve recognition for protection because they secure preconditions for the good life. So imagine having to navigate 
whether you want to provide information that is necessary to provide you with the kind of health care that you desperately need, but knowing that if the state has too much of it, they can arrest you easier, and they can incarcerate you faster, and they can incarcerate your brothers and your sisters and your members of your community easier and more frequently. But if we had a robust structure in place that recognized intimate privacy as a civil right, then maybe those data dilemmas, maybe that decision-making process isn't as burdensome, isn't as always over your shoulder as it is today. Anita is absolutely right that our structures of intimate privacy are completely a mess, partly because we don't have this robust structure underlying the decisions that we make about what kind of information about ourselves that we are willing to disclose in order to improve our lives. So in other words, what I think Danielle is actually doing in this book is not simply calling for a right to intimate privacy. Danielle is calling for social change that would allow us to be who we are that would allow us to own our sexuality, not hide it because other people stigmatize it. So for example, or just to follow up on that, um, there's a, a, a um, sociologist or a sociologist of sex named Gail Rubin who wrote um, several years ago about uh, the two sides or the opposite sides uh, of uh, the sexual hierarchy. If you're on one side, right, that's the good side, what is the good side of the sexual hierarchy? That's if you're heterosexual, if, you only, if you're monogamous, if you only engage in a certain type of sexual activity. Um, those are the good side because that's what the power structures that we live in say are good sexual behaviors. The bad side of, sexual, of the sexual hierarchy are those people who are non-monogamous, those people who are queer, those people who have different views or different approach relationships and sex in very different ways. Um, you include drag queens, for example, on the wrong side of the sexual hierarchy. And right now we live in a world where conservative elements in our society are attacking people like drag queens, are attacking transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people because they are trying to enforce this same hierarchy. If, however, we had these robust structures of thinking about our right to dress in clothes that are that reflect a gender opposite to the gender we had assigned at birth. If we had robust structures in place that allow us to decide that I'm going to be proud that I am in a thruple or that I am engaging in these kinds of sexual experiences. If we allowed particularly queer people and women online to own their sexuality because they knew that their sexuality is protected and their disclosures about their sexuality and their disclosures about their identity is protected by the law, but not just by the law, by the norms in society that are influenced and informed by the law, then imagine the, how much better our society would be. And I think that's ultimately what Danielle wants to do in this book. Right? It may be convenient, politically convenient, when we meet with legislatures to say, I'm simply talking about a civil right. Right? And you know what civil rights language is, is. You've written many laws, policymaker, about a civil right to this or a civil right to that. You know what that looks like in the workplace. You know what that looks like here. But in fact, this is an entry point, an almost a subversive entry point to building a far better society, a society that I think most of us in this room and certainly 
any minoritized and marginalized population, particularly sexual marginalized populations, dream about. So I'll end with another thank you for Danielle for doing, for engaging in that kind of project that is absolutely necessary. Thank you. Oh, this is wonderfully fun. Uh, so I, I want to start, too, uh, with some, some thanks uh, and then some responses of what I'm trying to do here um, and, of course, your wonderful comments. So just first, my, my thank you is that what's so great after, golly, I've been in the Academy for 17 years is to feel like I'm home, that I have the sense of belonging in this community for my, our faculty members, so thank you, Dean Galyuboff, um, and thank you to my colleagues here who allowed me, in some sense, to come home, of course, to be with Debbie, which was always the master plan, uh, but to be with all of my colleagues who have been so wonderfully embracing and our amazing students. Uh, I love you all, you know that. Um, and so it has, it's been a really meaningful thing. And of course, my, my, my real actual family, I have schnookered them somehow to come here to be with us. And I even have my mother-in-law uh, living in Charlottesville too, and thank you. And so, so anyone who knows me knows that I love uh, my cat, Patsy. You also know that I love my sister. Uh, who's at OBGYN, so I, I feel like so blessed in life to have her, so she happens to be sitting in the audience, so I have to say thank you, and to my wonderful nephew James for coming. Um, and you know, as you think about your sense of the chosen communities, right, the ones that you're born into and the ones that you choose, just like coming and joining this amazing faculty and students, um, is by sheer, um, uh, what do they say, the forces of the universe coming together in the most magical ways. I have the most awesome colleagues in my privacy community. And what has been so special is to have my mentors become, all three of them, become my dearest of friends, my colleagues in arms in the privacy uh, advocacy community. So Anita and I have been in the trenches together at the Electronic Privacy Information Center, and now, of course, Ari is in the band as well. And so it has been a joy to, um, their work is at the core of what I'm doing. So Anita Allen in 1988, when Mark Zuckerberg was four, okay, <laughs> wrote the most brilliant book called Uneasy Access, making the feminist case for why Kitty McKinnon wasn't right, that privacy was a one-way ratchet to inequality. Anita argued that it, privacy doesn't have to be that way. Uh, and she sort of laid out for all of us how, what is a feminist understanding of privacy? Um, so when I sheepishly introduced myself to Anita, many, many now, years ago, uh, I basically got a human hug, you know, like a, a spiritual and intellectual hug, and I said, I love you, Anita. Your work is so important to me. Uh, and it has been a joy to be in your universe, but also to be pulled in and, and, and warmly embraced. And I love your criticism, as always. I value so much that, that a deep engagement uh, with the ideas from someone who's been my mentor all along. Um, and, and you'll see also in my book, so Uneasy Access is at the, what do they say, the foundation so is Dan's understanding privacy and the digital person. So Dan has helped me. I, I, what I thought I'd do is just explain how their work, all three of them, is at the heart of how I think about privacy. So Dan is a, is a pragmatist. He has us think about privacy on the ground in its most 
earthy ways. That is, we look to the sets of problems that we face, and we should view all these problems as a series of family resemblances. And so I have always taken cues from my mentor, Dan, who, God bless you for answering that email in 2006. I was scared out of my mind to reach out to you and thought you might think my article is insane, suggesting that we should think about uh, databases of sensitive information as reservoirs of danger, like Rylands versus Fletcher. Hey, all you first years and towards teachers. Uh, it was probably a very kooky idea. But Dan took me under his wing um, and, and helped nurture my scholarship and work all of these years. So his, his thinking about privacy as a series of problems that we had to tackle um, has always informed how I think about privacy. And this is the love part, Ari, right? The um, Ari's first book is called Privacy is Trust. And it is a story about privacy and intimacy and love and about the importance of trust in any relationship. And so how I've thought about privacy too and inspiring me is the concept of trust. It's indispensability to our relationships, whether those relationships are with companies, are with each other, and crucially with governments. So it, you, you see I brought my three friends here and, and they have inspired me. So my students in the audience have all read their work. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, I'm reading, like I'm seeing now in the flesh my casebook author and the author of Understanding Privacy and Unpopular Privacy and Industry Unbound. See, they've written a lot of books. So I just named three different books that they've, they've written and that my students have all read for my classes. So, so I thought today was running around with you three. It's like, oh, I can't wait to introduce you. I felt like the cool kid at school. Um, this is what happens when you're a dorky, dorky privacy law professor. Uh, but so, so, you know, the, so, so my thanks are a debt of, of intellectual gratitude that I can't ever really repay so much as to keep us in conversation with each other, co-authoring, blazing a trail, going ahead, and doing our advocacy work together, and saying thank you for your work. Um, so in response to the wonderful comments, I, I thought what I would do is, and I'm gonna integrate, I think I'm hoping to, in part kind of integrate some responses to, to the three of you uh, by saying that in so many aspects, we know that, that law is, is storytelling, right? It's the stories that we include and the stories we don't include that help us understand who we are, understand why and what matters to us what's wrong, right, what's on and off the table. Uh, and it's through those stories that I, that, uh, that I have been wrestling with, of course, as Anita says, the messiness of our interpersonal, that is individuals invade each other's intimate privacy in ways that are gobsmacking. And that's, that is absolutely true, right? But law can help teach us, and so many victims say that when Courts recognize the wrongs done to them, the harms that they've experienced when an ex posts their nude photos online or a stranger secretly takes, tapes them in a hotel, takes that video, emails it to all of their loved ones and friends through by getting all of their contacts on LinkedIn, uh, threatens to post more unless they then send more nude photos, that when those kinds of cases when they make their way to the courts, if we indeed ever get there, and sometimes we do with the help of pro bono counsel, that when courts, and often you get a default judgment, that really is the perpetrators have no money and they don't show up, but victims say, I, have, I feel seen, 
right? My story was in this default judgment that the court went out of its way to write a decision in. And so these behaviors are the most wrongful, vile behaviors that judges have ever seen. That the harms that they are seeing experience, right, a whole of life experience, right, that their, their, their bodies are no longer their own, right? Victims totally change their appearance. They lose a massive amount of weight or gain a massive amount of weight because they don't want to be recognizable, right? They can't get jobs. They can't keep jobs. They're, it's a whole life that is an incurable disease, as one victim told me. So when judges see them, when they feel seen, it is, it is changing in the way that is, it communicates to all of us is that we should see their harms and the fullness of themselves, that their demand is one that we recognize. And sometimes judges don't get this stuff, right, as Anita was telling us, they don't. But litigants do. And so the earliest privacy plaintiffs were, were all women. And they sued for the either watching their childbirth without permission and under sort of fake circumstances, use of their photos in ways of taking the Broadway star whose picture in 1890 was taken um, and then splashed across the newspapers in ways that she felt was inappropriate. And judges sort of, they protected those plaintiffs by saying like, we're protecting their delicate sensibilities. But did the plaintiffs describe their circumstances that way? Not at all. In testimony, so this is drawn from Jessica Lake's wonderful The Faces That Launched a Thousand Lawsuits. In going through the testimony, this is really hard to get testimonies. So you have to be a real historian like Ardeen and go through as Jessica Lake did. did. And you find how the testimony of the plaintiffs they said of themselves, I'm not shy. I don't mind people seeing my body. I don't want to be exploited in ways that make me feel alienated from myself. And in so many ways, their own testimony at their own trials, they give bear witness to their own suffering, right? So maybe judges don't get it. Maybe their so troubling social attitudes are behind what they explicitly say in opinions, but we can as plaintiffs, we can as the bar, we can as storytellers about the law change how we see law, right? And I, and I wanted to, in, in, the, in the book, not only talk about law storytelling uh, from the perspective of plaintiffs who were, whose privacy was invaded by other individuals, but, as, uh, but also of what I call spying, Inc., corporate surveillance of intimate life, which is structural messiness at a scale I can't capture, <laughs> right? That is, you know, all of that data that you share with your dating app, all of your location data that your cell phone collects, that your Amazon Echo is then tracking, uh, that all of the browsing that you're doing, whether it's WebMD, right, you're on a porn site, all of that data is then being bought by advertisers, marketers, and sold to data brokers. And it leads to the story of Grindr, most of these companies just basically tell us in their privacy policies, too bad, so sad, we're selling your data. We never read those, except for my students, read those privacy policies, right? Uh, and it's really, it is in some sense, notice and too bad, so sad for all of us choice, so to speak. Um, but so what happens with that structural messiness is that, so there was a Monsignor Jeffrey Burrell who was administrator for the Catholic Church. Um, and he used Grindr when he would go on vacation as well as when he was at home. So going to meeting dates, going to gay bars. Um, and a reporter, because Grindr was selling all of its location data and all of its data in profiles to a location data broker, which you didn't know existed, but there are 40 of them. 
and they have details of all of everywhere we've ever gone along with our mobile ID device identifier, easily then reconfigured back to us in two seconds. A reporter then bought the data from a location data broker, um, then figured out that he was going to gay bars, called his bosses at the administrators for the Catholic Church, and he lost his job. Right. So the ease with which we pierce someone's livelihood by the very choices they make about their own intimate life is, is messy, but we have to tell those stories if we're going to get any attempt at law sort of changing the set of ground rules that we need to change. Um, and the sort of lastly, the story of, of, of law too, the civil right to intimate privacy and what it can do for us is as we tell our stories, is that we know that in state for state, state Medicaid laws, so Janine, forgive me, like I'm riffing a little bit on what OBGYNs do, but, but um, state for state, uh, due to meta state Medicaid laws, that in, in many states, social workers are required for pregnant, poor pregnant women, they require them to ask a series of questions, including when they come in for their first visit, whether they've ever terminated a pregnancy, have they ever been raped, do they ever do drugs? That is required data that the state mandates be collected. And in a post-ops world, here we are, where the state is requiring that kind of intimate information to be collected, that you went to your first visit, but you didn't come back for your second. So I did a panel with our col colleague, Mimi Riley, who explains that there are some doctors who sort of misunderstand the reporting requirement that they would then, if the, let's say patient doesn't come back, she comes for her first visit, but she doesn't come back for the second. And then the presumption is you've had an abortion before. Do I need to report you to law enforcement in a state in which it's a crime both for you and your health provider, right? Health providers then at cross purposes with patient. That I want us to tell the stories of the patients who have to tell their doctors in states where the state Medicaid rules require you to answer a series of questions about yourself, that then law enforcement can get tales told by doctors who think they have to so report this information. And then, of course, law enforcement just has to go to a data broker. They're already actually, they're already the, cus the biggest customers of data brokers are who? Law enforcement. And they already have access to your period tracking app information, your geolocation, your web browsing activities, your searches. Did you search for abortion and state, right? And so it's those stories I think we have to tell. So are you have so so Dan? Yeah, I'm, I I hope that we can see right through our stories that law, as stories that we tell and the stories that we don't tell, let's tell them together. Uh, because I want us to lay the groundwork for a social movement. Last night we were talking about, I can be kind of dreary to talk to because it seems kind of depressing. You're like, really? That's what humanity's all about? And I say, but wait a minute. I, I want to explain why I'm hopeful, why I'm a little bit of a Pollyanna, is because it's the grounds for social movements to grow from both inspired by law and then to inspire law, right? Law's our teacher, but then, of course, social media movements demanding that law change on the books. That South Korea, I think, is a perfect way to sort of end my remarks. Um, in 2018, women in South Korea couldn't go to the bathroom without worrying that there would be hidden cameras in public restrooms. They had to bring kits with them with masks pre-pandemic and silicone, where they would, and also screwdrivers, where they'd break any hole that looked like it could have a hidden camera. Now, women in, in, in South Korea took to the streets. There were five marches. 
So the beginning of 2018, 25 women, 25,000 women took to the streets of Seoul's, Seoul with, with signs that said in both English and Korean. They were truly speaking to an international and their own national audience. And those signs said, my life is not your porn. And three months later, 45,000 women took and allies took to the streets with the same signs, my life is not your porn. And three months later after that, 65,000 women. After that, 90,000. The last March, December 2018, 120,000 women and allies took to the streets because my life is not your porn. And the government responded. So I've been working with the Digital Sex Crime Information Commission that has now a whole government approach vis-a-vis -vis platform responsibility. So there's no immunity, there's no legal shield, they face responsibility. Perpetrators, there are now stiff criminal penalties that are being enforced. Victims have resources, and this is a huge important intervention. So of the 5,000 victims last year who reported uh, what they call digital sex crime information, using the term that their advocates wanted them to adopt and use in ways that made clear to victims, we see you. It's not just a joke, it's not a hidden camera, haha, they called it Molka. It's a digital sex crime use of information. Um, so there are 5,000 victims and nearly 70% of them use these services, right? So government, they felt comfortable going to government to get resources to help them when they were off their feet and didn't have jobs, lost, had lost housing, et cetera. So, so I do, or you got me right, I guess my friends know me well, the, I want uh, a conception of a civil right to intimate privacy to change, of course, our attitudes. And we do it soft, we do it quietly, we do it step by step, we do it with industry, we do it with each other as advocates. We do it with co courts. We do it with lawmakers. And it's never going to happen unless we all, of course, go to the streets. So in some sense, I want us to bring moral suasion to the story. Uh, in many ways, those stories, as Dan was underscoring, I'm hoping can help us do that. Uh, so, so thank you so much for letting me respond. And. Uh,